0: Hello, and welcome to Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter Fourteen. He wasn't home long since Powers had no recording capability in California by the end of January. Walt was on his way back to New York to score two more Mickeys and to promote other and to promote other projects. Having had Oswald wrested from him, Walt was already worried that he would be too dependent on Mickey and that if he didn't diversify, he would be putting himself and the studio at risk. Before returning to New York, he had begun considering a series of one-real live-action talking comedies and had written his his old investor, John Cowles, asking if he might be interested in financing it. He even stopped off in Kansas City to consult with Cowles on his way to New York. At the same time, he was also working on another cartoon series, one without a single central character that he hoped would be sufficiently different from the Mickeys that it could be run in theaters that competed with those showing the Mickeys, providing him with another stream of revenue. The idea for the new series had originated with Carl Stalling the previous September, when Walt visited him on the way to New York, and Walt had apparently floated it to distributors during his stay. What Stalling had proposed was a musical novelty, a cartoon that began with the music and had the action animated to it, and he had a subject for the first installment as well. As a child, Stalling had seen an ad in the American Boy magazine for a dancing skeleton and had badgered his father to give him a quarter to send for it. The image had stuck with him, and and he suggested that Walt animate a group of skeletons dancing to one of Stalling's own compositions that incorporated passages from Edward Gre- from Edward Grieg's March of the Dwarfs. The image stuck with Walt, too. As early as September, he wrote Roy that Carl's idea of the skeleton dance for a musical novelty has been growing on me, and he cited what he called dandy possibilities that he evidently conveyed to Powers, who expressed interest. On January 1st, the studio began animating the film, and two weeks later, just before he arrived in New York again, Walt wrote Greigert Walt wrote Giegrich that he had something quite out of the ordinary, though Ub hadn't finished enough for Walt to show anything yet. Meanwhile, Walt was in New York recording the soundtracks for the new Mickeys and enthusing over the reception of the Mickeys already in release. Seeing the barn dance at the Strand, he wrote Lillian proudly that there was a large cardboard cutout of Mickey in the lobby, and he enclosed the theater's program as evidence of Mickey's growing popularity. He is what is known as a hit, he declared with more than a little hyperbole. The distributors, he crowed, give me lots of praise for their cleverness, and he admitted that he hoped to prove that the quality of the first Mickeys is not an accident, but a consistent standard. He added that one selling point was Ub Iwerks, not only his animation, to which Walt said New York animators took off their hats, but also his name, which made people look twice when they see it. But while Walt was recording the Mickeys and soaking up praise, he had another bigger mission in New York, a personal mission. During his first New York trip, when he was pushing Mickey and facing rejection, one distributor picked up a package of Lifesaver candies. The public knows Lifesavers, he told Walt. They don't know you. They don't know your mouse. That made an impression on Walt. As he recalled it years later, he said to himself, from now on they're going to know if they... They're going to know. If they liked the picture, they're going to know what his, the producer's name, is. So on this trip, he had decided to stage a full-scale assault on the animation industry and establish Walt Disney as its undisputed leader, the lifesavers of animation. The timing was propitious. During his stay, he learned that Charles Mintz had lost his universal contract, a fact that obviously had Walt reveling, and that the Fleshers had lost their contract too, narrowing the competition considerably and leaving him with an irresistible opportunity. Now is our chance to get a hold on the industry, he urged Roy and Ubb. so let's take advantage of the situation. Part of his strategy was to gain a foothold in sound recording. Having been rescued by sound himself, Walt now decided to open a recording studio in California for other independent producers, on which, Walt had written his partners, we should be able to clean up a nice sum. This also meant that Walt would no longer have to spend so much time in the East, where he had lived for five of the last six months, all without Lillian. As early as October, during his last trip, he was arranging to have Jimmy Lower, who was running the camera at the studio, come to New York, learn sound recording, and become the studio's resident sound engineer. In this endeavor, Walt was strongly encouraged by Pat Powers, and for good reason. Powers would be furnishing the recording equipment, and was even negotiating to lease the Marshall Nealon Studio in Glendale Avenue— on Glendale Avenue where Walt was planning not only to set up the recording studio but to relocate his entire organization for the bargain rental of a $100 a month. Powers was also arranging to lend Walt his own sound specialist, William Garrity, for six months at a salary of $150 a week. Walt was so enthused, or Powers had gotten him enthused, that he was even talking of optioning at least two more sound outfits from Powers, another on the West Coast and one in the Midwest. But none of this came cheaply from a Sharpie-like Powers. In addition to the 10% distribution fee he was he was to receive for the Mickeys, Powers demanded a royalty of 25 cents per foot of finished negative plus, and this was the kicker, $13,000, a very substantial sum in 1928, each year for a term of 10 years, whether Walt used Cinephone or not, whether any other producers used Cinephone, and whether Cinephone later proved obsolete or not. He also demanded $5,000 upon signing, $5,000 that Walt did not have. In short, Powers was essentially pulling in the line on which he had Walt Disney hooked. The terms were onerous, but Walt, ever the go-getter and an enthusiast rather than a pragmatist, was not about to let money stop him from what he was now confident was an extraordinary opportunity to become a sound expert. He wrote Roy desperately asking him to badger Cowles or Calgar or Stalling, even Stalling's father-in-law, for funds, using a second mortgage on the studio as security. "'But we must raise the dough,' he insisted.' Stalling, in fact, did loan them $2,000. For the remainder, Walt did something that must have been terribly difficult for him. He asked Elias, who resettled who resettled in Portland, Oregon with Flora, owned several small apartment buildings. Elias likely took a second mortgage on one of them to furnish Walt with a $2,500 loan that February, a loan Walt justified by telling his father that the recording studio is no gamble but an opportunity. The very day he received the loan, February 14th, he signed the contract with Powers, though he had done so again without consulting Roy, who was livid. Did you read this, he shouted when Walt returned to California later that month. Of course I didn't, Walt responded. What the hell? I wanted the equipment. It was shipped out from New York that week. Walt Disney, who had always eschewed the business side of his studio and depended upon Roy to raise the funds he needed, was now not only an animation producer but a sound recording entrepreneur as well. The month after he returned to California, he and Roy rented the Tech Art Studios on Melrose Avenue in Hollywood for the sound operation, though the animation operation remained at Hyperion. Powers' deal for the Nealon studio had fallen through at the last minute, In the meantime, Jimmy Lower went to New York to learn how to use the system, and in April, William Garrity, Powers' sound man, arrived at the studio to supervise the use of the equipment. When completed, Roy wrote one prospective customer, this stage will be equal to any sound stages so far constructed. Intending to provide full sound services, the Disneys began outfitting two old trucks with recording equipment for location shooting, though what they were also doing was further indebting themselves to powers. While Walt was arranging the salient of his assault to make himself animation's indispensable man, he was having less success with his stalling-inspired new series, which he called Silly Symphonies. He had a brush the animation of the skeleton dance so that he could begin recording Stalling's track and show the film to prospective distributors, and Powers was already talking about a 12-cartoon package, but Walt admitted that he was disappointed in what he saw. He sent it back to New York in early March after it had been completed and had Powers screen it, but distributors found the dancing spooks odd and even gruesome, and Powers couldn't get a sale. Allow me to interrupt for a second, but that is completely unfair. I love, personally, I love the skeleton dance. I could watch that short over and over. Anyway, Walt tried to get an exhibitor to show it in Los Angeles and met the same reaction. Yet he maintained an unwavering instinctive confidence in the symphonies. It's hard to explain just what we have in mind for this series, Walt confessed to Geekrich, but I feel myself that it will be something unusual and should have a wide appeal. Several months later, hoping that he might get Fred Miller, who managed the prestigious Carthay Circle Theater in Los Angeles, to watch it as he had gotten Harry Reichen back to watch Willie, Walt buttonholed a friend who knew a film salesman who knew Miller. "'Walt found the salesman in a pool hall. "'He agreed to take a look, liked it, and got it to Miller, "'who also liked it and agreed to run it at the Carthay on a temporary basis, "'where it became the first cartoon ever programmed there. "'The audience responded positively, "'but Walt, who attended the screening with iWorks, wasn't certain. "'Are they laughing at us or with us?' he asked. Giegrich was less than pleased with Walt's efforts, thinking that the showing at Carthay would undermine his efforts to sell the silly symphonies nationally, but Walt countered that the cartoon was making a big hit and attracting an unusual amount of attention, including a favorable notice in the Los Angeles Times, that could only help their prospects. When Fred Miller asked to book the cartoon for an extended run, Walt wrote Powers that Fox officials will be sold 100% when they hear the audience reaction opening night. Walt was right. Where exhibitors had hesitated over the cartoon's macabre escapades, audiences and critics seemed to swoon. Here is one of the most novel cartoon subjects ever shown on a screen, gushed Film Daily. Samuel Roxy Rothfell... The impresario at the Grand Roxy Theater in New York booked it, and then wrote Walt that it was without exception one of the cleverest things I have seen, and as you know, the audience enjoyed every moment of it.' "'One young aspiring animator named Joseph Barbara sat in the Roxy's third balcony watching the skeleton dance, about 70 miles from the screen, but said the impact on me was tremendous nevertheless. "'I saw these skeletons dancing in a row and in unison, and I asked myself, how do you do that? How do you make that happen?' As another prong of his assault, all the time that Walt was manically promoting his new sound operation and the silly symphonies, he was also replenishing his staff with top-rated animators in expectation of having to produce both the Mickeys and the new series, as many as 36 new cartoons that year. While he had been in New York in February, Walt, again with the encouragement of powers who seemed to want the Mickeys as quickly as possible, had interviewed potential recruits and wound up hiring Bert Gillette, an animation veteran who was working at Pat Sullivan's studio drawing Felix the Cat, which he says are not so hot, and whom Walt describes as a damn clever fellow. Gillette, and sorry parents if uh, there are children listening, (laughs) Um, I'm just reading what's written down. Um, Gillette recommended Ben Sharpstein, who had worked under him for years earlier animating the Mutt and Jeff series. When Walt returned from New York, he wrote Sharpstein, then freelancing in San Francisco, and invited him out to the studio. Before meeting with Walt, Sharpstein had dinner with Bill Nolan and Walter Lance, another animator, both of whom advised him not to join Disney because sound cartoons were too limited to succeed. But when Sharpstein met Walt, he walked a mile from the streetcar stop to Hyperion. Walt was so excited about sound that he grabbed several Mickeys and drove Sharpstein to a downtown theater to show them. The studio still did not have its own screening room. Sharpstein was impressed by the quality and joined the studio late in March at $125 a week, more than twice as much as Walt himself was earning in salary at the time. Over the next several months, Walt added Jack King, a highly regarded animator from New York, and Norman Ferguson, another New Yorker, who had animated the Aesop's fables that Walt had so admired. Walt also attempted to recruit the primary animators for Felix the Cat Al Eugster and Otto Mesmer. It was pressure, Mesmer remembered. He begged and pleaded. But Mesmer was settled in New York, and in any case, he felt that Felix would continue forever. Later that summer of 1929, Roy went to New York and continued the recruiting drive, even attempting to pry loose veteran animator Dick Humor for a possible Mickey Mouse comic strip without success. Even so, by August, Walt was employing eight animators on a staff of 20, eight of the top animators in the business. The studio to which the newcomers came, set in the hinterland of the Silver Lake District of Los Angeles, which one visitor described as one of those endless suburban settings of Barcelona bungalows, pink roses, and red filling stations, was still, after three years, physically underwhelming. It consisted of one. It, con- it consisted of the one stucco building, the original bungalow, with offices for Roy and Walt, and a large room that was divided by a partition down the center, ink and paint on one side, animation on the other. Next to this main building was a small shed where canisters of film and old drawings were stored, and behind that was the stage on which Walt had shot the later Alices. By the spring of 1929, Walt had begun making small additions as the need arose— there was what Sharpstein called a nubbin for a camera room to shield the animators from the disturbance of the camera's noise, though a chimes factory next door once tested a doorbell all day, nearly driving the artists crazy. There was also another addition, about 14 feet square, that Walt called the music room because he kept a piano there for Stalling to use, and shortly afterward, a larger addition for more offices. All told, these later constructions tripled the original space. But if the effect was slapdash and haphazard, the operation inside was anything but, at least compared to the low standards of the rest of the animation industry. When Sharpstein had met Walt that afternoon at Hyperion, Walt had passionately expressed his long-standing conviction that his salvation was in making a product that so excelled that the public would recognize it and enjoy it as the best entertainment and that they would more or less demand to see Disney pictures. From his own experience in animation, where everything seemed to be done on the fly, Sharpstein thought that Walt was being overly ambitious, but he soon realized that the Disney studio was a complete reversal of what he had found in New York. At Disney, the atmosphere may have have been casual, but when it came to work, everything was carefully planned. Every cartoon had an exposure sheet precisely outlining each scene, each movement, and each individual drawing. At first, Walt had all of the animators spend a portion of their time doing the layout work laying out the backgrounds and the precise positions of the characters on those backgrounds, but he soon instituted one of his early divisions of labor by hiring a separate layout artist, Carlos Manriquez, for this task. As the staff grew, Iwerks, too, no longer provided all the basic animation, but instead provided key sketches that other animators would then execute. At night, he presided over animation classes. By the end of the year, Iwerks was concentrating on preparing bar sheets and exposure sheets and heading up the Silly Symphonies unit, while Bert Gillette headed up the Mickey Mouses. The biggest difference, however, between the Disney Studio and the animation studios in New York was not in preparation or specialization, it was in expectation. Walt Disney had to be the best. As he had with the Alices and the Oswalds, though with indifferent results, Walt insisted upon excellence, and Sharpstein admitted that he soon had some misgivings about joining the studio when he came to realize how high Walt's standards were. "'Assigned what he believed was a run-of-the-mill scene in one of the early Mickeys, "'he saw that Walt did not regard it or any scene that way. "'In Walt's estimation, everything that was done had to be executed "'with a great deal of thought toward finesse in order to make it better. "'It could be a struggle convincing men who had spent their careers "'thinking of animation as a throwaway "'that they could and must accomplish something better.'" Excuse me. I have encountered plenty of trouble getting my new men adjusted to our method of working, Walt complained to Giegrich that April, but things are clearing up now, and it looks like we are going to be able to sail along smoothly from now on. Part of Walt's secret was that in insisting on quality from individuals of whom it had never been required, he inspired commitment. We'd hate to go home at night, were recalled, and we couldn't wait to get the op- and we couldn't wait to get to the office in the morning. We had lots of vitality, and we had to work it off. Though only a short time earlier the atmosphere at the studio had been dismal, the success of the Mickeys lifted spirits. The animators would now The animators would now play pranks on one another, pouring water on a chair as someone was about to sit in it, or putting cheese on the light under a colleague's animation board, or art-gum eraser shavings in his pipe tobacco. But all the horseplay and jokes I worked said never got in the way of the work. We all loved what we were doing, and the enthusiasm got onto the screen." Indeed, when a reporter glowingly described the carefree atmosphere at Hyperion, Walt actually took offense, griping to Gigrich that one would rather we are nothing but a happy go lucky bunch of fellows without any system or organization about us, and that all I do is sit on my fanny and pass out the checks to the fellows. There was something else, too, that gave the Disney studio an esprit and sense of fraternity Walt's own informality. Freed from the constant demands and financial tensions of the mince era, he was a different man. He prided himself on being one of the guys, even cultivated it. We haven't any president or any other officers, he told a visiting reporter proudly. In fact, we are not even incorporated. I guess you couldn't call us a company. We voice our opinions, and sometimes we have good old-fashioned scraps, but in the end things get ironed out and we have something we're all proud of. Most of the employees even had a key to the studio's front door. Walt could still be demanding and caustic, especially with longtime associates like Iwerks, but having learned from his experience with the mutineers who detested him, Walt drew closer to his animators, stopping by their desks to talk not just about their work, but about their interests and making suggestions to them without seeming overbearing. The men loved it, Iwerks said, and they all responded but as smoothly as walt had the new operation running his pursuit of excellence eventually ran up against an intractable reality that always seemed to bedevil him money quality was expensive and there never seemed to be enough money to support it The early Mickeys cost between $4,180, Mickey's Follies, and $5,357, the Carnival Kid, to produce, which didn't include the royalties to powers for the cinephone system, or the onerous yearly $13,000, or the debt to record Steamboat Willie, which the Disneys were still paying off nearly a year later. By May, Walt had received nearly $40,000 in fees and rentals from Powers, but he had to pay distribution costs and expenses, and had to retire loans, leaving him virtually nothing, especially since he had expanded his staff and was paying the new animators well. The money has been coming in at a pretty fair rate, Roy determined later that summer, saying that Willie alone had grossed $15,000 and might eventually gross $25,000. The question is, what are the expenses? And they are enough, you can bet. At the same time, Walt was carrying the expenses of the recording studio, which, despite his sunny predictions, had yet to turn a profit and was draining money. He had, in fact, tried to borrow $2,500 from Powers to help keep it afloat. To extricate himself from his financial predicament, Walt thought of trying an old remedy, turning out the Mickeys faster, one every two weeks, and making a silly symphony every month, adding up to 38 or 39 cartoons annually in all but he would have needed another infusion of $10,000 to do so, and Powers refused, sticking to the original 26 shorts. Trying another tack, he had a friend make newsreels to sell to Powers, but Geekrich and another of Powers' associates, Ed Smith, queered it. That June, he even shot a sound short of... That June, he even shot a sound, sh- a sound short of film stars... He even shot a sound short of film stars Al Jolson, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and Joan Crawford among them attending a movie premiere, and Will Rogers delivering an informal dinner speech for a series he called Hollywood Screen Star News, and dangled it before Columbia Pictures, but they too demurred. Increasingly desperate, Walt began hiking to studios again with his animations, hoping to interest one of them in securing the rights from Powers. The writer Francis Marion claimed that two editors at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer had seen Disney's cartoons and recommended them to Marion and Metro directors George Hill and Victor Fleming. Standing in the projection room, Walt was, as Marion remembered, a tall, shy youth who wore a shabby suit and whose apprehensive glance at us told very clearly of many past disappointments. He even apologized for the crudeness of the animations. But the group was enthralled by Mickey— "'Fleming, his long arms flailing the air, exclaimed, "'Man, you've got it! Damnedest best cartoon I've ever seen!' Marion said that Walt had also brought along a second cartoon, A Silly Symphony, which, in her description, sounded like springtime, though this is unlikely since the cartoon had yet to be drawn, and that the group was just as enthusiastic about it, so much so that Marion immediately headed to the office of Metro Head Louis B. Mayer, or Louis B. Mayer, depending, to drag him down to the projection room. Mayer, however, was not impressed— Watching the symphony, he pushed a button to stop the projector, pronounced the cartoon ridiculous, and groused that while men and women dance together, and boys and girls dance together, flowers do not dance together. When Mayer rose to leave, Fleming eased him back into his chair and advised he see the Mickey Mouse. No sooner did the film start, however, than Mayer let out a bellow and demanded that the cartoon be stopped. Driving his fist into the pit of his stomach, he declared that pregnant women go to see MGM films and that women are terrified of mice, especially a mouse ten feet tall on the motion picture screen. Mayer stormed out of the room, slamming the door behind him while Walt stood there in embarrassment. It was Columbia that provided him with a reprieve. Frank Capra, a Sicilian immigrant who had worked his way from a right... From writing gags for silent comedy producer Max Sinnett to becoming Columbia's leading director, comedy producer Max Sinnet to becoming oh to becoming Columbia's leading director had been prevailed upon by the studio's lab technician to watch a cartoon one night after Capra screened the rushes of his own film. Capra was tired and unenthusiastic about the prospect, and he was even less enthused when the lab technician introduced him to Walt, a scrawny, nondescript, hungry-looking young man wearing two days' growth of beard and a slouch cap. But when the cartoon hit the screen, Capra was entranced and insisted that Columbia had Harry, C- Harry Cohn see it. Cohn, who also grumbled about having to see a cartoon, turned out to be equally impressed. Columbia, not a major studio, but an aspiring one, but an aspiring one was willing to take on the cartoons. Powers was amenable since he would be getting the bulk of the receipts. That August, after the successful showings of the Skeleton Dance at the Carthay Circle and the Roxy, Giegridge was able to conclude a distribution agreement with Columbia, one symphony each month for a five thousand dollar advance. It was a testament to just how successful the skeleton dance was, and to the Disneys growing reputation that Columbia made the offer without seeing another symphony because there was no other symphony to show, since Powers had already sold the foreign rights for three thousand five hundred dollars. The Disneys would be receiving the Disneys would be receiving eight thousand five hundred dollars for each cartoon less than less than 10% commission to powers, and less other expenses like negatives, advertising, and the sound royalty. The deal also called for a 65-35 split of profits favoring powers until all costs were repaid and a 50-50 split thereafter. Roy calculated that the actual studio receipts after all the deductions were roughly $6,000 per cartoon, which he admitted wasn't exceptional, but it was regular, and even $6,000 net, for certain every few weeks for a year, will be a big help towards establishing ourselves firmly. But survival wasn't what young Walt Disney had in mind. After his problems at laugh and with Mintz, he wanted domination. Domination that would make his position unassailable. That fall, with the Columbia deal signed and a steady cash flow assured, and with most of his rivals reeling, he concentrated on a new objective in his larger quest to become the animation overlord. He was determined that Mickey Mouse would supplant Felix the cat. Felix, a thick black cat with oval eyes, pointy ears, and an expressive tail, had long been the reigning cartoon star, not only in America, but around the world. There was a Felix song... There was a Felix song, a Felix comic strip, Felix books, dolls, pencils, and figurines, and even Felix cigars. When RCA demonstrated its new television system in the summer of 1928, a 12-inch papier-mâché Felix figure was the first image transmitted. The best tribute to his popularity, however, may have been the fact that over the years he had given rise to at least half a dozen to at least a half-dozen imitations, including Mince's Crazy Cat and Walt's own Julius. But Felix's creator, the unpredictable Pat Sullivan, had none of Walt Disney's drive or foresight. When his distributor pressed him to convert Felix to sound after Mickey's triumph, Sullivan dallied, finally losing his contract. By the time he decided that he had to add sound to his cartoons, that was precisely what he did, add it to previously animated cartoons, rather than conceive of them as Walt did in terms of sound. By 1930, Felix was doomed, said one of his animators, because he was a silent pantomime character. We tried sound, but it was a flop. Felix's sudden demise provided Walt Disney with his opening. At the beginning, no effort to catapult Mickey into stardom was too small. Walt would even have friends call theaters asking what time the Mickey Mouse cartoon would show, and if they were told that there was no Mickey, he instructed them to ask why. More aggressively, Walt arranged with one downtown theater to make a cartoon of Mickey leading the theater's live orchestra and then being pelted by the musicians. In exchange, the theater booked another Mickey cartoon and put the title on the marquee, where Walt could have it photographed for publicity. By August, he was taking out full-page ads in the motion picture trade papers, declaring Mickey Mouse amazingly clever, screamingly funny, perfectly synchronized sound cartoons. But the biggest boost to Mickey Mouse, aside from sound itself, occurred not through Walt's promotions, which were scattershot, but through those of Harry Wooden, the young manager of the Fox Dome Theater in Ocean Park, a Los Angeles suburb. On his own initiative late that summer, Wooden had organized a Mickey Mouse club, filling his theater on Saturday afternoons with children who took a Mickey Mouse pledge, performed in an impromptu Mickey Mouse band, and then watched Mickey Mouse cartoons. Wooden had invited Walt to one of the matinees, and Walt said he got quite a kick to see about 1,000 kids cheering for Mickey Mouse. But Wooden himself, not unlike Walt Disney, had larger aspirations. He convinced Walt that what he was doing locally he could also do nationally. Nationally. Walt was encouraging. I feel positive that a stunt like this, combined with a comic strip and various toys and novelties that might be made around Mickey, Walt wrote Gingrich eagerly, would help us in making this series one of the biggest things that has ever come out. By January, under studio auspices, Wooden had launched a Mickey Mouse Club campaign, Theaters would buy a charter from the studio for $25 which entitled them to run special Mickey Mouse matinees and stage various activities from pie-eating contests to marble tournaments to the ever-present Mickey Mouse Band. The studio then funneled that money to salesmen who hawked buttons, banners, and other Mickey paraphernalia to the theaters. The purchase of this, Walt advised, could be subsidized by local merchants. You know what? I have to double check and see what year it came out, but I have uh one of the actual Mickey Mouse Club button pins. Um I don't know if it's from the 20s. Um it looks like it might be from the 40s or 50s. I'd have to check the date on it again, but it's really old and I'm trying to keep it unopened and unused as much as I can cuz I don't want to I don't want to age it any more than it already is. Anyway, Wooden had even devised a Mickey Mouse creed. Mickey Mice Do Not Swear, Smoke, Cheat, or Lie that was recited at every meeting and a Mickey Mouse song composed by Stalling titled Minnie's Yoo-Hoo that was sung before each adjournment. I'm the guy they call Little Mickey Mouse, got a sweetie down at the chicken house, neither fat nor skinny, she's the horse's whinny, she's my little Minnie Mouse. It featured a chorus of animal sounds, concluding, with all the cows and the chickens, they all sound like the dickens, when I hear my little Minnie's Yoo-Hoo. How much the clubs were responsible for propelling Mickey, and how much Mickey was responsible for propelling the clubs is difficult to determine, but the promotion took off immediately and kept growing, giving theaters revenue from Saturday matinees, parents a three-hour respite from their children, the film industry a beacon of wholesomeness to which they could point to deflect critics, and Walt Disney a powerful means of promoting his creation and himself. The Biltmore Theater in Miami signed up 1,200 members, the Fox Echo Theater in in Syracuse, New York, 1,300, the Fox McDonald Theater in Eugene, Oregon, 1,500, and it regularly turned away hundreds of others who arrived for the shows. Excuse me. At one theater, children began gathering on the sidewalk at nine o'clock in the morning for an 11 o'clock matinee. In Milwaukee, 3,000 Mickey Mouse Club members staged a parade as a highlight of a Mickey Mouse Club convention. At their peak... Roy estimated there were over eight hundred chapters in the country, with by another estimate more than one million members, more according to the motion picture herald that the combined mem- than the combined membership of the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts of America, the Mickey Mouse Clubs had become a movement. Walt was looking to newspapers too, and his campaign to establish Mickey as a national figure, just as Pat Sullivan had used a comic strip to establish Felix. At least since June 1929, when Iwerks received a letter from J. B. Connolly of the King Features newspaper syndicate louding the Mickey Mouse cartoons and suggesting the possibility of a Mickey Mouse comic strip, Walt had been aggressively pushing the idea with powers, and Giegrich not so much to exploit Mickey as to promote him further. By early August, King Features had made a firm offer. This was when Roy was attempting to enlist Dick Humor to draw the strip, and on January 13, 1930, it made its first appearance. Walt contributed the stories while Iwerks drew the strip, and another artist named Wynn Smith inked the drawings. When Smith suddenly quit four months later, Walt shifted a young animator named Floyd Gottfredson into the job on a temporary assignment. In the end, Walt was too distracted by other obligations to find a replacement, and Gottfredson would continue drawing the Mickey Mouse strip until his retirement in 1975. Like the Mickey Mouse clubs, the comic strip was an instant success and another enormous boon to Mickey's popularity perhaps as powerful an engine in disseminating his image as the cartoons themselves. By the summer, the Strip was being syndicated in as many as 40 newspapers and in 22 countries and was earning the Disney's $1,500 a month, out of which they paid $800 in salaries and other costs. It was evidence of the Strip's appeal that when, as a promotion for it, a dozen papers offered readers a Mickey Mouse photo, they received 20,000 requests. Throughout the months that he was pressing to launch the Mickey Mouse clubs and the comic strip, Walt was also prodding Giegrich to make a deal to manufacture Mickey Mouse merchandise, offering him 10% of the profits, an offer that Giegrich ultimately rejected. In this, Walt was almost certainly thinking of the tie-in between Pat Sullivan and George Borgfeldt & Company, which manufactured Felix toys, including a popular Felix the Cat doll that reportedly earned Sullivan substantial royalties. But he was also no doubt considering that there was already bootleg Mickey merchandise on the market from which he was not profiting, yet another sign of Mickey's popularity. As Walt later told it, he was in New York with Lillian early in 1930, when a man approached him at his hotel and waved $300 at him, which the man was offering for the right to put Mickey Mouse on cheap paper tablets for schoolchildren. Walt said he needed the money, so he took it, making this his first license for a Mickey Mouse product. But this was more an accident than a, premed- than a premeditated effort. Walt had been urging Giegrich to contact Borgfeld for months, and when Giegrich had failed to act, Walt apparently contacted Borgfeld himself during the same New York trip and made his own deal on January 29th for toys and novelties. By early April, the studio machine shop was making Mickey Mouse doll models to send to Borgfeld, though Walt, as particular with his merchandises with his animations, was displeased with them and asked that they be held off the market. At the same time, Roy was soliciting publishers for a book of animal stories featuring Mickey, was discussing a Mickey comic book with one firm, and was attempting to interest various confectionaries including the large Curtis and Mars companies in a Mickey Mouse candy bar. Oh, that's probably what um that's probably what eventually led to the Mickey Premium Bar, not a candy bar per se, it's an ice cream bar, but oh my god, if you've never had it, Uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Disney, buy one. (coughs) "'Things are happening fast for us now,' Roy wrote his parents that January, "'with the clubs, the comic strip, and the merchandise all rapidly coming to fruition. "'So much so, they have our heads swimming.' He added that amid the success of Walt Mickey campaign they were looking for a new distributor as well trying to decide which is the best place as we have as we have had overtures from every outlet in the business including Fox Paramount and Warner Brothers how does that sound of course they were still obligated to pat Powers for the Mickeys for some time to come, but that hadn't prevented them from quietly approaching other distributors and fielding offers without Powers' knowledge, nor had it prevented Charles Giegrich, Powers' right-hand man, from approaching them with an offer to serve as their distributor and freeze out Powers.' Nat Levine, the president of Mascot Pictures, which specialized in serials and a longtime advisor to the Disneys, offered them $50,000 up front to bind an agreement. At the same time, Walt was in discussions with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and expected them to deliver a draft contract, and the old Van Buren Animation Studio offered to buy them outright. If they, the cartoons, weren't good and good-paying propositions, Roy assured Walt, who had gone to New York in January to listen to offers, they, distributors, would not be fighting hard to take them away from us. We never were in as good a position before to fight them as we are now. There was a reason the Disneys were conducting secret negotiations, and the reason was the chicanery of Walt's one-time savior, the genial Pat Powers. Pat Powers. As early as the previous fall, tensions had begun to surface between Walt and Powers over the remittance of royalties from the cartoons. Jack Kahn of Columbia, believing that the, that the dispute might explain what he saw as the inferior quality of the second Silly Symphony, had even ordered any had even ordered Walt to his office to discuss it. Walt insisted that relations were good and any hint to the contrary was absurd, though he later complained about Columbia's own seeming lassitude when it came to promoting the symphonies. That, in turn, prom- that in turn prompted Powers to write him darkly, just as Mintz once had, that Walt had put him in an embarrassing position, and shown ingratitude after every distributor in the business had refused to handle the product under any kind of basis which would enable us to get even the cost of it back. In fact, Powers said he knew of no instance where they were even receptive or seriously considered handling the product. If these insults weren't enough, tensions heightened considerably when Powers repeatedly refused to give the Disneys a full accounting of the money due them. Roy knew there was a lot of money at stake, but when he went to New York to remonstrate and Powers still refused, he returned to the studio and told Walt that Powers was a crook. Walt was "'Walt was suspicious, but not entirely convinced. "'You know, my greatest weakness is that I'm a lousy judge of people,' he once said, "'and called Roy a troublemaker.' "'Oh, there was a note there. I have to read the note.' "'An account more sympathetic to Powers absolved him "'because he discovered that larger distributors had frozen him out of the market "'in certain territories, forcing him to sublet the cartoons to Columbia.' More by this version, Powers refused to give the Disneys an accounting because he wanted a legal contract rather than the letters of agreement under which he and the Disneys had been operating. Um, so, meanwhile, Powers, meanwhile Powers, sensing that the Disneys might be attempting to circumvent him with a new distributor, wired Walt testily that they had. T- that they had obviously decided to terminate the agreement and he wanted the courtesy of a notification so that he could make arrangements with another animator. Wary of making any move until he received his money, Roy suggested that Walt go to New York himself and confront Powers. Walt left with Lillian on January seventeenth, 1930. By the time Walt arrived in New York, the skirmish had escalated into an all-out war, eerily reminiscent of the showdown with Charles Mintz just two years earlier, right down to the betrayal by one of Walt's closest associates. The morning of January 21st, Ub Iwerks had gone to Roy's office, abruptly announced that he wanted to leave the studio as soon as possible, and asked to be released from his contract and from the partnership he had formed with the Disneys. Roy was stunned and hurt, though he offered iWorks $5,000 for his 20% share of the company. What Roy did not know at the time, and only heard later that day in a wire from Walt, who had learned it when Powers gleefully sprang it on him during a meeting in Powers's office, was that Iwerks had been lured away by Powers himself. Though Iwerks had initially denied having a contract with Powers, he sheepishly admitted in a long talk with Roy as he was preparing to leave the studio that Giegrich had contracted him as early as September.' the same time that Gigrich had contacted the Disneys with the plan to double-cross powers about forming a studio of his own. Iwerks wasn't terribly ambitious, and he had never shown any inclination or talent to run a studio, but he entertained the offer, he confessed, because he had long seated silently under Walt's command. He bristled when Walt would visit his animation table at night. <laughs> and rearranged the drawings on the exposure sheets, even though Iwerks had already timed them. And he bristled when, after he had roughed out a scene for the skeleton dance, Walt insisted that he give it to an in-betweener or novice animator to complete, believing that Iwerks' time was too valuable to have him fully animate everything. Indeed, animating to extremes, as it was called, was the way most animators now worked, providing the key or extreme poses and letting an assistant fill in the rest of the action. Iwerks, however, believed that he animated best when he animated straight ahead and he had no desire to change. Finally, and perhaps most important, Iwerks had come to feel that he had been living in Walt's shadow, and he resented not receiving the credit he felt he deserved for the cartoons whose title card read, A Walt Disney Comic by Ub Iwerks. Iwerks's wife recalled attending a party where a boy approached Walt with a pen and paper and asked him if he would draw Mickey. Walt promptly handed the paper to Iwerks, ordered him to do the drawing, and said that he would sign it. Iwerks, usually imperturbable, snapped, Draw your own Mickey, and left. Indeed, Iwerks was so resentful of the credit denied him that obviously under Powers' encouragement after he left the... After he left, he threatened to sue the Disneys for Mickey Mouse on copyright grounds. If Ub's action reaches crew, Walt wrote Roy from New York, advise you ridicule it as foolish as he is being used as a cat's paw by Powers and may never make any pictures. When Iwerks visited Roy's office three days after his resignation to explain himself, he insisted that he hadn't known that Gingrich was actually representing Powers until he'd received the contract just days earlier. Oh, there's a note there, too. In fact, it was difficult to tell exactly for whom Geekrich was dealing. Though he worked for Powers, he had contacted the Van Buren studio, offering them the contracts of Iwerks and Carl Stalling, who hadn't even signed with him, and telling Van Buren that most publicity on Mickey Mouse and Silly Symphonies was on the name of Ub Iwerks, with very little, if any, mention of Walt Disney. Um, this mollified Roy slightly. We know how gullible and easily led Ub is, and we have a good dose of how two-faced Charlie Gegrich and P.A. are, he wrote Walt, but he still expressed how deeply shocked and hurt he was at Iwerks' betrayal, and he rescinded his $5,000 offer. Now that Powers was involved, he would give Iwerks only $2,920, payable in one year, which Iwerks accepted as settlement for all his claims. The alternative, Roy warned, was to dissolve their partnership, which would force Powers to open his books and would undoubtedly ignite his anger at Iwerks. As Iwerks left Roy's office, he expressed his regrets and said he intended to write Walt because he told Roy he did not want Walt to feel hard against him, that he would never have gone into this had he any idea it would turn out as it has. For Walt's part, though he and Iwerks had never been personally close, he nevertheless, according to one acquaintance, obviously loved that guy, and when a young animator joined the studio the week of Iwerks' departure and met Walt, Walt was still wounded and angered by Iwerks' disloyalty and talked about little else. Losing Iwerks would have been a blow in any case, but he was not the only defector that week. Unsettled by Iwerks' departure and increasingly upset himself at what he saw as Walt's high-handedness, Carl Stalling, who had known Walt since the Kansas City days, ambushed Roy the very morning Iwerks resigned and began complaining about his liability in the recording studio and the royalties he expected from Minnie's Yoo-Hoo if it were published. Stalling had a point. Walt's attorney had advised that the song be copyrighted in Walt's name because Roy wrote Walt. Because Roy wrote Walt, it would not be a good idea for us to have him stalling, having too many strings on things, at least until he takes a 100% cooperation attitude. Roy offered to buy Stalling's share in the recording studio, which seemed to appease him, but he was back at Roy the next morning, saying that he was unhappy, that he couldn't get along with Walt, and that he felt like Eyeworks that he should leave immediately. Roy thought Stalling had gotten nasty, and when the composer demanded his back pay and brandished legal notices that he had written himself, Roy had the accounting office cut him a check and sent him off. The disloyalty of Stalling and Iwerks, two men who had been with Walt since virtually the beginning, hurt Walt. So, too, did the fact of Iwerks's even being wooed. It was unclear whether Powers had signed Iwerks as a way to pressure Walt into renewing the Mickey contract, as Powers himself told Walt he had, or whether, like Mims, Powers believed that Walt was superfluous and that Iwerks was the real talent behind Mickey. Whichever it was, Walt seemed to be stung by the idea that Iwerks would be more highly regarded than he was. To him, the studio was Walt Disney. Roy made a point of telling him that while the studio staff expressed shock at iWorks' installings leaving, they had closed ranks behind Walt. Ben Sharpstein told Roy that U.S. fellows who have been in this business so long know who was the guts of this organization. We know the difference of these cartoons over the average run is nothing more or less than Walt's personality. Nobody could kid themselves that it was otherwise. Roy himself assured Walt that the year to come will show them all who was really responsible for Mickey Mouse. While the warfare with Powers continued, the Disneys had still not had still not cut their ties or signed with a new distributor. And Powers geared up for his own studio by raiding Universal for Ham Hamilton, poaching Hugh Harmon from Mintz, and attempting to pry sound engineer William Garrity from Walt, Walt and Roy wasted no time bringing in reinforcements of their own. The very day Stalling resigned, Roy met with Ollie Wallace, a former organist at the Million Dollar Theater in downtown Los Angeles, who had been recommended by Mickey Mouse Club impresario Harry Wooden as a possible replacement. Wallace laughed derisively when Roy Roy told him the salary, $150, but Roy said that if Wallace's contributions paid off, he would be amply rewarded. At Walt's insistence, excuse me, Roy had also tendered a contract to Tom Palmer, who had been working for producer Walter Lance at Universal, and promoted Bill Cottrell, who had joined the studio a year earlier in ink and paint to, ink and paint to animation. That same week, Roy hired animator Dave Hand, who had been trained at the Chicago Academy at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts, where Walt had once studied, and then worked at the Bray Studio. Nearly all the recruits earned more than Walt, whose salary fluctuated between $125 and $150 a week, depending on how much money was in the studio's till at the time. Meanwhile, Walt was girding for the final showdown. He and Roy had decided that they would try to enlist Columbia on their side by complaining that by luring Iwerks away, Powers had disrupted their organization, delayed their production schedule, and generally wreaked havoc, which was costing not only the Disneys but Columbia as well. Roy even suggested that Walt use Powers as an excuse to discontinue the symphonies or deliberately produce a few inferior ones to support their case. In fact Walt advised Roy to suspend temporarily production on the Mickey Mouses which Powers still distributed still distributed and concentrate on the Symphonies which Columbia distributed to press their claim the brothers hired a young California attorney named Gunther Lessing who headed to New York to help Walt cope with Powers attorney's positive con- "'Attorneys positive contract can easily be abandoned if not satisfactorily adjusted,' Walt wired Roy, adding that he and Lessing were trying to work out a settlement with Powers. Indeed, despite all the bad blood between them, Powers hadn't given up trying to keep Walt.' Undercutting Iwerks, he told Lessing that he was willing to give Walt a salary of $2,000 a week, a staggering sum in 1930, if Walt would fulfill the current contract and sign another allowing allowing Powers to distribute the Mickeys the following year. Remarkable as it may seem, Walt still hadn't entirely closed the door on Powers— Roy was terrified that Powers would somehow sweet-talk Walt into signing another contract, but he had become too disillusioned by Powers' unwillingness to make an accounting of profits, and by his stealing eyeworks to see him as anything but a last resort, and he was counting on a new distributor, taking him on now that Mickey Mouse was so successful. Now that Mickey Mouse was so successful. Powers is crooked, Lillian wrote Roy and Edna, no doubt echoing Walt, so I don't know how it will all turn out. At the same time, Walt had received an offer from Warner Brothers to buy the studio outright, had once again approached Felix Weiss, the sales manager for MGM, about picking up the Mickeys, and was talking to Columbia itself about a similar deal. The difference between this confrontation and his confrontation with Mintz was that Walt now seemed to have the upper hand. The Mickeys, after all, were popular, but Powers was as shrewd and incorrigible as Mintz was bullying. Though NGM was ready to conclude a deal, Powers scared them off by threatening a lawsuit, and Walt worried that Powers and Columbia might collude somehow to force the Disneys to resign with him. Roy also worried that if they broke with Powers, Powers would set up another cinephone operation to compete with theirs, and they would never be able to meet their royalty guarantee. As if Powers' threats weren't enough, that same week, John Randolph Bray, the animation pioneer, demanded a meeting with Walt, during which Bray told him that he was going to enforce his patents and limit the number of cartoons allowed on the market. "'Boy, they're gunning for him from all sides,' Lillian wrote Roy and Edna, "'and he's dying to get back and make pictures. Is getting pretty nervous.' "'Indeed, Walt, usually imperturbable, was getting frantic, "'certain that Powers would intimidate other suitors as he had intimidated MGM, "'and concerned that Powers might file a breach of contract suit against him "'that would keep them tangled in court proceedings. "'He was constantly on the move, looking for a solution.' Racing from meetings with lawyers to meetings with distributors to meetings with powers, he had been in New York nearly two weeks before he could meet Lillian for lunch or see a Broadway show with her. At lunch with animator Dick Humer, whom Walt was still trying to enlist for the studio, Walt was uncharacteristically distracted, sullen, and monosyllabic. All through the meal, humor recalled, I don't think Walt addressed five words to me, prompting humor to muse what a strange guy Walt Disney was, especially for someone who was, re- who was recruiting. After a week of fraying nerves and jousting with Powers, who still adamantly refused to open his books, Walt finally broke with him, instructing Roy to stop producing the Mickeys. Then he braced for the inevitable lawsuit, which, when it came, set off a farcical game of hide-and-seek. Lessing phoned Walt at the Algonquin Hotel that Powers was about to serve him with papers. Walt and Lillian hastily threw their clothes into a trunk, called a billboy, paid the bill, and hailed a cab, telling the driver to go anywhere. They eventually found a small hotel, the Piccadilly, and registered under the names Mr. and Mrs. Walter E. Call, Flora Disney's maiden name. After another week, they left New York for California. All the time he was in the city, Walt had been sending basically cheery messages back to Roy, reassuring him again and again that everything would turn out satisfactorily. "'When he really got kicked in the teeth and got out completely,' Roy later remembered of the split with Powers. "'On his way home, he tells me, everything's fine. When I get back, we're going to make a big start.' But he really didn't have anything. And then on the train, he sweated out some plans. That was typical of him. "'It was,' Roy might have added, "'Charlie Mintz all over again. Even with Mickey Mouse, they seemed right back at the beginning, back having to fight to make their cartoons.' (laughs) but the situation that february was not as dire as roy and even walt seemed to think for one thing the recording studio had begun to generate profits so much so that the company that the company occasionally borrowed from it to meet its payroll and so much so that in years federal census That in that year's federal census, while Walt identified himself as a producer, Roy identified himself as a sound recorder. For another and more important, Columbia Pictures, having grossed nearly $400,000 on the first 13 symphonies and obviously recognizing just how much profit it could earn if it distributed the Mickeys too, had surprisingly decided to step into the breach and take on Powers. Within weeks of Walt's returning to California, his attorneys had worked out an agreement with Columbia and then successfully arranged a settlement with Powers, though one attorney confessed that the settlement papers were complicated, which was an understatement. Roy estimated that Powers had made $100,000 in his two years of distributing the Mickeys, but the old rascal was not about to let Walt go cheaply. He demanded $50,000, which Columbia had conceded to pay in 10 monthly installments, secured by the Disney's overages from any source, and retention of everything he had collected on the Mickeys to date. Roy later bargained this down to 40% of Powers' collections from exhibitors to whom he had already rented cartoons and 25% from franchises who had already bought the rights to the cartoons, but this was minus expenses of roughly $150,000 for negatives and sound equipment. In addition, Powers was to receive Walt's share of the net profits from Cinephone up to $62,000. Columbia would retire its note from percentages on the first fifteen Mickeys, which it was now authorized to redistribute, to redistribute and the first six silly symphonies, while the Disneys would receive eighty percent of the profits on the remaining powers bookings from which he had yet to collect rentals. The settlement was not particularly favorable for the Disneys. Legal fees alone had cost them fifty thousand dollars, but powers had left them without an alternative. While sacrifice burns me up, Gunther Lessing wired Roy, I believe in straightening entire mess imperative and less costly in the long run. Even then it wasn't over. Though Walt, Columbia, and Powers had all agreed to the terms, the deal wasn't concluded until Roy went to New York early that April to iron out the final wrinkles, which, as was typical with Powers, proved stubborn. After eight hours of negotiations on April 22nd, Roy, Powers, the Columbia executives, and all the attorneys, a regular army, Roy said, had to reconvene at 11 in the morning the next day for another eight hours. If someone didn't raise an objection to every single thing, Roy wrote, Walt later that day, someone else did. Throughout, Powers was jovial and kept referring to Mickey Mouse as Mickey Louse. At the end of the day, with the exception of the Cinephone Agreement, which Roy later negotiated down from $13,000 a year to 8500 the Disneys were rid of Pat Powers once and for all. Man, I don't know how many of my listeners watch the Beetlejuice animated series, but there is one where they try to make an uncopyrighted reference to Mickey Mouse um, as Louis Louse, and I wonder if, like... It was the company commenting on this. I don't know. I'm probably thinking too much with that. Probably not. It's probably just a coincidence, but it's still weird. Now it was Roy providing the optimistic missives. I honestly feel elated over everything he wired Walt He wired Walt as he was finally leaving New York after three weeks of bargaining. Settlement going to work out good and future very bright. Having wriggled out of Powers' control, Walt was ecstatic. George Morris, who had recently joined the Disney's business office, said that the deal had lifted a weight of worry off Walt's shoulders and enabled him to return to movie making again after the months of distraction. Under the new Columbia contract, Walt would be receiving a $7,000 advance per cartoon in addition to a percentage of profits. But having once again been betrayed in business, and Walt having once again been reminded of the treacherous reality that lay outside his cartoon world, the Disneys hardly regarded Columbia as a deliverance from deviousness. As he was negotiating with both Powers and Columbia, Roy learned that Columbia had secretly approached their nemesis with an offer of $60,000 for all his rights in the Mickeys, or alternatively, $30,000 and 20% of the profits they would make from them, telling Powers that they would, in Roy's words, fight it out with us themselves. Roy immediately corralled Columbia executives Joe Brandt and Jack Kahn, who backed down, but Roy was still distrustful of his new partners and insisted on the contractual right to examine Columbia's books periodically, fully expecting that he would have a showdown with them someday, too. But until then, Walt could retreat back to the Mickeys and the Silly Symphonies. Until then, he was free.